1: wish you could fish more anywhere anytime rod geeks a st croix rods partner has developed a forty two inch one piece travel rod designed and built with the same technology found in st croix rods this travel rod is offered as a kit that comes with the rg-42 rod spinning reel fishing line pliers and tackle tray all in a case with space for your wallet phone and fishing license just grab and go perfect to keep in your pickup car or rv this shorty performs much like a longer rod but is compact enough for easy storage and for on-the-go use. Make this the summer you fish more. RodGeeks.com GuideFitter is the industry network for professional outdoor guides and outfitters, the trusted destination for consumers seeking and sharing guided hunting and fishing experiences of a lifetime, and the enterprise influencer marketing platform for outdoor brands. GuideFitter and its members represent the pulse of the guided hunting and fishing industry. Guidefitters Outdoor Partners provide discounts to select types of outdoor professionals, including game wardens, members of the military, guides, outfitters, and other outdoor professionals. Over 145 brand partners and counting. Gear across many categories, including packs, footwear, clothing, flashlights, knives, optics, even firearms and ammo. For more information, go to guidefitter.com slash wardenswatch. That's wardenswatch, all one word. I'm game warden Wayne Saunders, and I'm a member of Guidefitter. This podcast is brought to you by... is Warden's Watch. Hey, happy new year everybody. And no matter when you're listening to this podcast, we are coming in to 2020. We are on the brim. Tomorrow we are going to be in When you hear this podcast, this Warden's Watch podcast, we are going to be in 2020. So happy new year everybody. Get those new year's resolutions out there, stick to them, get healthier, get outside. Get outside. That's what I get. Experience the outdoors, no matter what you love to do, whether it's hiking, whether it's fishing, whether it's playing with your dog, whether it's walking down by the brook, whether it's getting out there and getting in the mud. You know, just enjoy the outdoors because it is vast and it is an awesome place and it's where we belong. Your spirit belongs outside. So enjoy, enjoy. Not even a year with Warden's Watch Podcast. Not even. March is when we launched. March. So we haven't even hit a year. We're going to hit a year in March, and we're going to do some special stuff in March as well. But during the 2019, we have just uh, had so much success with Warden's Watch. We have been you know, promoting international wildlife crime stopper, stoppers, operation game thieves around the country, uh, departments, the law enforcement divisions, and the game wardens. The most important thing is to promote... This job to, to recruit people, to support those out there doing a dynamic job for our nation, for North America, for the world, those wardens that are out there on the front lines protecting our natural resources and getting those stories to you so you can hear them, so you can get excited about protecting our natural resources So and get involved as well because with those, you can get involved with IWC, you can be a member Of International Wildlife Crime Stoppers for thirty-five bucks for the year. Thirty-five bucks. I'm trying to think what I spend on thirty-five bucks on, and it's it's not a whole lot. So, but I can be part of the solution for thirty-five dollars a year. InternationalWildlifeCrimeStoppers.org or WildlifeCrimeStoppers.org. Go there, check it out, become a part of the solution, become a part of the fight. And I just want to thank them for their support through this uh, opening up of Warden's Watch. There's a lot of other people that have been support, podcasters. My producer, Jay Scott, has his own podcast called Big Buck Registry. He has been such a resource for me. We wouldn't have the quality that we have with Warden's Watch without Jay Scott. And we wouldn't have all the experience that Jay brings. You know, the nice thing is he brings an outside influence to me. Because if you, you guys ever know, if you have police friends or game warden friends, sometimes we can have a little narrow vision. Sometimes we see the world through police classes, but we need that anchor. We need that outside friend, that outside influence to bring us back to where the general public is, where the hunters are, where the fishermen, where the outdoor people are. And we need to anchor ourselves in those people so we don't have just a narrow view. And Jay brings that to Warden's Watch. Sometimes I think things are boring. I'm like, Jay, what do you think of that? Oh, it's awesome. It's great. Boy, it's just because I'm looking at him through Game Warden's eyes. He's like, the general public doesn't know that because it's common knowledge to you, Wayne, doesn't mean it's common knowledge to them. And he just brings so much in. The other podcaster, I just want to give a shout out there. It's Ben Page, the Foul Front Podcast. If you are a duck hunter get ben's podcast ben page does an outstanding job and a hard worker man this guy is probably the hardest working podcaster i know sorry jay uh, <laughs> this guy just produces 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 he's got a passion for getting the information out to you and if you're a if you're a waterfowl hunter ben page the foul front uh, definitely ben supported me with uh chiming out there. I'm on his top 10 list of uh, podcasts and just a constantly promoter for Warden's Watch. And I just, I really appreciate that. You know, giving me technical information, giving me inspiration and giving me listeners as well. Ben, thanks a lot. I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your opinions and uh heck of a job with the Foul Front Podcast. Uh, just great work. We're going to go right into it. So we are going to knock this out. 2020, we are going to start with an anniversary celebration, 140 years of conservation law enforcement in the state of New York. doesn't get any better. As we have these significant birthdays around the country and we learn the history of our agencies that c- are committed to protecting our resources, and here the men and women that came before actually you know, sacrificed and sacrificed a lot for public safety, for our resources, for our states, and for our, our North America. So there's, there's a lot of stories out there, and this is just part of it. It's part of our heritage. So I think it's a really unique thing that I could get together with a horse from New York State Environmental Conservation Police and, and get this story out to you guys. And we're going to start it off, the first podcast of 2020, episode 24 for Warden's Watch. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I get excited about history. I watch the History Channel way too much. Yes, way too much. That's that's the kind of stuff I like. And I just love hearing how we started, how we, we cut through Uh, You know, to protect our nation's resources, whether we started on the coast protecting our fish, because we saw that as a resource that we needed to feed our colonies. And then we came in and the deer were getting decimated. So we became deer deputies and trying to start protecting our natural resources just as far as America started. And nationwide, North America has a reputation for that an awesome reputation for protecting its resources. So here's one of the stories, New York Environmental Conservation. Hope you enjoy the first episode of 2020, Warden's Watch episode 24. Thanks for listening. Share it with your friends. On this episode of Warden's Watch, we are going to celebrate the New York State Environmental Conservation Police because they are hitting 140th years in 2020. And that's exciting, because that's, that's a long time. And we are with the historian for the environmental police, Tom Kefa which uh, is pretty cool just to have a historian and that position. And I think each, every department should have that position because we do have a lot of history. And I think we lose so much history, Tom. And uh, welcome to Warden's Watch. Uh, Tom is a captain, right? Yep,
2: yep. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So you're a captain with an environmental conservation officer and you're a historian. Now, you weren't a captain. You were a historian before you were a captain, right?
2: Correct. Yep.
1: So that's just uh, something that uh, we we talked about this earlier on on how you how you became a historian. So may, maybe we start off with that. I mean, you, okay. it takes a special person.
2: Yeah, a special person. You could say that.
1: Yeah. Um, and Tom, if you look at Tom, he's not old and stuffy like you might think a historian, like the librarian. So. <laughs> 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 depends on what day it is. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, but uh, so it just takes a special person. So, and how long have you been doing that for?
2: So, um, 2007 was when I picked up the job officially. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think back. It, was pro- it wasn't It was very long. It happened very organically for me. When I came on, and I was always kind of interested in history stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had only been on the job a couple of years. And what happened was one of the older... Uh, warden lieutenants had given me uh, a stack of old patches and uh, I forget how we got even talking about it but um, we had talked about some old stuff in history and he had some patches laying around at his house and so the next time I came to the office he gave me a bunch of these old patches and that kind of got me started with kind of collecting and I, I do collect uniform patches just fish and game stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of got me in, into that world <clears throat> and from there I just kind of got thinking naturally about history and you know, when were these patches used? When do I have the first one? Um, does right. anybody have the first one? And and things like that. And that's when I first found out that we had a historian. And at the time, it, uh, his name was Eric Haslin. He was our historian. Um, he was an, an officer, a conservation officer. Um, you know, I reached out to Eric, and I just started kind of bugging him a little bit, you know, uh-huh.
1: about... Wanted well, to know the history of yeah, this and asking that. asking him mm.
2: questions and um asking him if i could help him with things and and you know like a lot of us you know we're very busy all the time right you know whether you're an officer or a lieutenant or whatever mm-hmm. and uh you know after a while eric was kind of like you know once he felt me out a little bit he was like yeah i could use the help you know and so i helped him with some smaller projects and when it came time for eric to retire Um, a couple of years later, you know, he kind of recommended me to the director at the time and said, this is probably the person that should take over because he truly has an interest. Mm -hmm. And so that's, so it kind of just happened naturally. It just happened. You know, Um, and I think that's the best way for it to happen because there's a lot of, we have a lot of stuff and you saw it out in the- Yes, we we did a photograph.
1: In the lobby uh, there
2: where um, a lot of old uniforms, old hats, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the old fur hats, The old Stetsons, uh, the old beaver fur hat, yeah, yeah. Uh, So much of that stuff is, if you don't take care of it, it degrades very Mm -hmm. fast, and
1: that's why we have museums. Yeah, is do you have a museum?
2: We don't have a museum in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully, you know, we just purchased a new Academy building, so hopefully there'll be a space in there that we can kind of use as great idea. a display area, mm-hmm. you know, and we can kind of do things a little more museum like there yeah, you know, because even here i I take care of everything you know if I find any old uniforms and i and I get in touch with old retirees all the time, and um you know if I get anything older i'll like an old uniform, I'll go dry clean it and just make sure it's
1: you know nice but but that's a great place to have a museum because it shows those new recruits, their roots, it shows them the beginning,
2: yeah. And in our old academy, our current academy that we have now, there's, there are displays here and there. Uh-huh. There just isn't a lot of room for it. Right. You know, we have, we're very fortunate here in New York. And I have to give props to our very first historian, which his name was uh, Jim Ponzio. And so the, the director back in the 80s was kind of visionary in that. He said, we really need a historian. And Jim, a lot of old collectors will know Jim. Jim is a collector. He was, mm-hmm. he was that guy. And... Um, I still meet people all around game wardens all around the country that remember trading with Jim. Yeah. You know? And so he was kinda like a natural fit for the first historian. Uh-huh. And so all the way back in the eighties we had a historian in place and Eric Haslin took over from Jim when Jim retired. Nice. And so, um, we've accumulated a lot of stuff over the years and and stuff you wanted to keep, you know, not you know of course we get multiples you know we have tons and tons of old uniforms and you kind of pare it down but still we you know how it is in any law enforcement division like like ours you go through periods where things change you get something different you get something new right you know the old the old uh the old seal skin hats kind of go out of style right exactly but, uh, but everybody wants to keep
1: their seal skin hat you know yeah so or everybody wants a different jacket Jackets you, or are a big People thing. get a
2: different jacket, <laughs> you know, and then that's the maybe that becomes the iconic the technology jacket for changes 10, 20 too. Years.
1: Yep, technology, what we do, what we wear, how we do it, what we use to it. So, all that changes. Yeah,
2: so we've accumulated a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, but 140 years ago, what did they start off with when you talk about 100 stuff? I mean, they didn't start off a whole lot 140 years ago, mm-hmm. did they?
2: Not much, no. What? Uh, back then, they basically got uh, a law book some some blank tickets and that was about it
1: so the yeah. first guys ever they actually i mean just the fact that they got some tickets is probably pretty good mm-hmm. and, so. a,
2: and they didn't look like much you know what i mean much more than pieces of paper but right but that's all they got we're, we're some papers here's uh-huh. your here's the law book here's here's some uh some little like di- daily diary entries so you can write down what you did every day uh-huh. here's your tickets for court um so to go describe and conquer, to know? me
1: and everybody else the first New York State Environmental Conservation Office police officer 130 years ago. What did he look like? What did he use? And what did he address? He just looked like any other guy. You know, he had no special equipment. You know, that all was on him to provide. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then they probably provided a, a wheel gun. Or did no, they They weren't even armed. No, you had
2: to provide your own
1: gun. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, if you if you even wanted a gun, you provided your own stuff. Yeah. You know, if you wanted a billy club, you bought the billy club or wow. whatever you had. Um, now most of those guys were picked, you know, because they were pretty good outdoorsmen. So they had canoes, they had mm-hmm. their own horses and carriages, and they could get around. So it, they kind of knew what they were doing in the outdoors, and they kind of picked and choose, you know, what what they, sh- they thought they should have as far as. Rain gear, outdoor stuff, boots. Yeah. But, but New York State didn't really give them anything. You know, I don't think we knew what to give them at the time. It right. was all
1: very new. So, But they had the desire, which is huge to start so, with any game warden.
2: They did. And there was only eight in the beginning. And uh, they spread them out pretty well around the state. They did. Statewide, eight of them. Statewide, eight of them. And even though they were spread out kind of evenly around the state... They could go anywhere in the state. Uh huh. You would almost think it would make more sense that you know the guy in Rochester would stay around Rochester, but you
1: would think so. But not necessarily. They yeah. would. They would end up wherever the wherever needed. Wherever the case took them. Okay. You know, so. So they, if would, they had somebody from New York City come up and shoot a whole bunch of deer, and they'd go back to New York City for to follow that investigation, or they would. They would. They would, they would follow it. Cross
2: around everywhere. What, you know? what
1: were some of those first rules that that came that for enforcement? I don't think you mean between like don't shoot fifty deer. Uh, You know, I just think okay, the laws. uh, laws. Our our beginnings are very broad, you know, and it just it's the beginning of acknowledgement that there's a resource that we can abuse that can go away. So, uh, you know, I think of market hunting and ducks and market hunting for deer and uh, and all of that. So the the first laws I think nationwide were very broad. So what what do you think they were targeting when they first started?
2: By the time we came around you know and this was 1880 things mm-hmm. were things were not looking good already you know right um you know the the labrador duck and which is a, an odd looking critter you know had already been gone extinct on the last one was shot on long island uh the heath hen was gone the eastern elk was gone deer were down in to record lows uh turkey as well turkey were a rare sight for a mm-hmm. while so you know they were just thinking um We need, they were thinking more in a fish and wildlife mode than anything else. You know, what can we do to bring back the deer and the turkey and and to help the trout and, you know, to get people to stop? It was kind of twofold. It was to get people to stop taking things in mass, you know, in an unsportsmanlike way. But it was also, there was also a backdoor focus on how do we get big companies to stop dumping into the streams? How do we get big companies to stop clear cutting all the forests so the habitat's gone? Mm-hmm. so even way back then there there was an idea that it wasn't just we weren't just after you know the the poachers we were also kind of had one eye on the companies mm. that were destroying things in another way right so and it was a lot to think about and I'm sure the first guys thought about it quite a bit there was There's a story um that I found in one of the books and, it, and it's a true story about how they all after a while of this uh eight of them kind of crossed crossing the New York state here, there and everywhere and uh-huh. not really knowing what the others are doing necessarily. They all got together and they had a meeting in Albany, an informal meeting, and they all decided on their own. Maybe we should just kind of stick to home and kind of split the state up into little pieces. And they did that on their own. Yeah. You know, no one told them to do that.
1: Well, after probably their 10th trip here or there, they were about, you know, we're talking Model A's, Model T's. Yeah, or just (laughs) horse horse
2: and carriage. Horse and
1: carriage. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So they kind of made it up as they went along. Uh Um, We talked about the laws, you know, the first laws, there weren't many of them but the rules were really kind of it's more of an interesting thing the rules b- between officers uh-huh. you know how do I work with you how do I how do I even find you if I need you you know how are all you right. handling it's the first time this has ever been done right so how how are you handling it as compared to how I'm handling it uh-huh and it must have been very it must have been a very trying time for all of them you H- know Absolutely. and they're all and they're all appointed people you know uh-huh. they can be removed on a whim so they also have to think about the a Politics lot, a, of it the <laughs> politics of it more than you know anybody does nowadays, right. yeah, because
1: so, we have all those rules established and everything yeah, now, so we have some a basis to, to form off of, so they were just they were you know, blazing new trails
2: they were, but And if you look back you know all the way up until the 30's, it was very rare to see a, a, a conservation officer a game protector that we were called back then. Oh it was yeah. it very rare to find a game protector that worked ten years, you know they usually lasted a couple of years and then
1: got burned out.
2: They would not necessarily get burnt out. They might, but, yeah. Um, but they might, you know, the political winds change, okay. and then some. All of a sudden, you know, somebody else needs a job, and so they. What, what a, were the first guys
1: paid? I'm trying to
2: think of what they were paid in the beginning. It wasn't much. About it was five hundred bucks a year. That's what wow. they made in the very beginning. Which, it, if you adjusted it for now, that'd be about making fourteen thousand dollars today. Yeah, know? that's what. I, thank Not you much. for doing that because I was Not that was going to be
1: my next question in today's day. What 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 is that? So, so so a lot of you guys probably had other jobs as well as game protectors. They or all that, had. Other they jobs. all had other jobs. Yeah. It was just kind of it's kind of like the judges. You know, they're judges, but they're also the local gun. Gun owner, mm-hmm. gun store owner, the the local store owner, so sure. or a local barber, you know, but they do the judge thing on the side, mm-hmm. so and that's how all all of our roots kind of started that way. But what impresses me that uh, and you brought it up, New York had the foresight for companies and things like that. And when I think of New York, you know, I spent a little time here. I was went to SUNY Cobleskill. New York always had force, you know, could see it the future with the Catskills and the Adirondacks by creating those parks. And then, like, their water system for New York City just amazes me being in the Catskills. I, you know, I got to see some of that structure from the turn of the century, uh, mm-hmm. they made it big. Yeah, I mean, did they New York know New York City was going to be New York City back then? Because they made everything huge that a, could accommodate, and it was just blows my mind that they had that much foresight. And it sounds like even when it came to game protectors, they had that foresight in starting it off in protection and and focusing on companies dumping things into the waterways and things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it was you know everything happened there first, mm-hmm. you know, and spread out from there. So. Yeah, New York City was very pivotal in our history, you know, and it still is. You know, we have we have yeah. ECOs in New York City, and they they have a job to do. There's a lot going on there, you know, and not just with environmental quality stuff, but with the, the fish markets, and Abs- the ocean, and there's a lot there. The illegal trade yep.
1: that comes in and out of it. There's it's, JFK, all
2: this stuff that comes through. You know about the ivory? You see it? Yes. That's Like the, the
1: the 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 big thing issue du jour, right? Yeah, ivory, I, I, ivory. So yeah
2: you know new york city is really kind of it's like a test ground you know so mm-hmm. back then things that were happening in new york city were kind of you know that's where it all kind of branched out from so
1: it's been the hub for 140 years and still is
2: yeah so i mean all these guys these market hunters that would shoot you know everything they could if they weren't eating it they were selling it in new york city yeah, absolutely you know and that's that's actually you know the 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 origin behind some of these laws on market hunting was, was because of how big of a market New York city was for everything. Mm. You know, and probably not just for our state either for, you know, people across state
1: lines and bring stuff over there. That's just where the market was. Right. And I think even the Chesapeake Bay, they were shooting ducks, putting them on trains and shipping them to the New York city. Yeah. And everywhere else in between. Yeah, that's like you said, the market hunting. That was that was the way you went down to the market. There was ducks hanging there. You bought your ducks, and you went home, whether you plucked them, or they were already plucked. And mm-hmm. that's the way food came across. Not like today with the supermarket; it's all wrapped up for you.
2: Yeah, and companies would can meat, wild meat back then. Mm-hmm. Wild game would get canned by. There's a good story, and I wish I had it in front of me. I don't, but you well, know, you can she- paraphrase. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Chef Boyardee before it was you know the SpaghettiOs company. You know, it started out as a regular. You know, more of a conventional company, and Chef R D, the the R D that you see on a can right now, is is a very Americanized and and an advertising kind of slogan type uh-huh. thing. It was originally, you know, that the chef's name, it, he was an Italian named Boyardi, B O I R D I, Boyardi, B O I A R D I. So that's who he was, Chef Boyardi. And that's how the company started. That's how it was marketed, mm-hmm. you know, and he didn't just do, you know, Italian food. He actually was, there There was a time when he was canning wild game and the company, and I, I can't even think of the year now, but very early on uh, in New York City, they were fined thousands and thousands of dollars for illegally canning wild game. Wow. You know? And so it's kind of funny. And you think of Chef Boyardee now, you think of SpaghettiOs. but uh,
1: I, I never will again. <laughs> but you're right. That's that's their claim to fame is SpaghettiOs. But I never knew that backstory story to Chef a, Boyardee.
2: Yeah. There's, you know, some of these companies, there's a history and an origin to them that's right. different than how it is now.
1: Right, because the times change. But, yeah, finding, yeah, getting fined for illegally canning wild game. And they probably didn't even know what they were eating back then. It was just a uh, wild game in a can. Here you go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it could or be canned duck or, or yeah. canned goose, or they
2: would tell you it was something uh,
1: canned wild meat. It could have been muskrat or beaver. Yeah, no, no, so. no doubt. But that that that's really neat. So, so I, as we
0: graduate through the years at Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop midwayusa.com.
1: You know, how, how, how does the, the New York DEC police change, and how do they grow, and...
2: It, they like everything else. I think we grew in fits and starts. Uh-huh. You know, the you know the first eight guys. It was very apparent, you know, early on that eight wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're not going to go from eight to a hundred. But um, the numbers started increasing gradually over time. And you know, there really is no formula to it. You know, it, it's really hard to quantify for you. Right. You know, but um. So but we next- pick up another ten guys here, twenty guys there. Uh, you know, something would happen, maybe, you know, like in the 20s, a study would come out um, about how the populations are starting to improve. And then, you know, the political winds would change a little. And then we get another 50 guys all of a sudden. Okay. Or uh, like when, you know, the World War Two ends, and the nation goes through a whole era of prosperity, and everybody, you know, it's the big boom of the sportsmen. You know, everybody's got money, everybody's got some extra free time, Mm -hmm. you know, because the work week changes and weekends off and that that whole culture gets people hunting more, gets people fishing more. So then, of course, you have more hunting accidents and then you see more boating accidents and then you get a big influx of law enforcement to take care of those problems. So if you look throughout our history, you see where things kind of just kind of they stay stagnant for a little while and mm-hmm. then, then there's a jump and then stagnant for a while and then
1: there's a jump. And, you know? and how did it grow? I mean, are you stronger today as far as numbers than you were in the thirties and the seventies? Is it ebbed and tide or
2: we we've grown and like I said, we've grown, you know, at an irregular rate for most of our history. We've leveled off it's it's probably been since the late eighties that we we haven't really gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. you know but we're at we're a little over 300 right now okay so and for some states that's amazing you know I talked to somebody in Nevada you know (laughs) they they have like 30 32 I think
1: yeah and they're like holy cow you know Mm -hmm. but when you think of the population which drives it I mean California has just as many but you look at the populations and population creates problems Mm -hmm. for wildlife and, and the controversies of that so or pollution so I think that's why I think you you see growth and non growth and and unfortunately you know my state has reduced since the, you know the sixties and the seventies seventies we were fifty strong and today today we're not that close so we're more forty ish which and is when you look at what we're doing becoming police in the woods because every podcast I say we're police in the woods mm-hmm. uh, just because it, it, people are gravitating and changing in the thirties they're hunting in the sixties they're hunting and now not so much it's starting to tip over. And I think in the future, we're going to have less hunting and more outdoor recreation, and more search and rescue as far as New Hampshire goes. But it's just the the change of it. And you guys, you know, you address, we're more of the traditional, you guys address pollution on a on a large scale.
2: Yeah. And that's, it's kind of a unique thing for, we're not the only state, but there are very few states mm-hmm. where the, where the conservation officers, game wardens, whatever you want to call us, there are very few states where... We we kind of do both sides of the fence as far as the the, the natural right. resources go. You know, there's the fish and wildlife side, mm-hmm. and then there's that other side, the EQ side with dumping and air quality and water quality. And we're one of the few states that kind of does both. That's been great for us in some ways. It has allowed us since the 60s when we kind of absorbed all that, and that's when we changed our name from Game Protector to Conservation Officer. It was 1964, mm-hmm. and that was all about the at the times. You know, the Green Movement right you know save the planet yeah earth day all that started late 60s into mm-hmm. the 70s and that's where we kind of we absorbed all these other laws that were kind of here there and everywhere right. and put it all together into the environmental conservation law
1: and then of course it sounds like gonna enforce the roots that? were that way though right? too i mean it sounds like you know even in the beginning there was people dumping a whole bunch of stuff into the rivers and waterways if and you
2: look we yeah, you know, we kind of always had one eye on it mm-hmm. we just didn't but we never really had it formalized as far as this is your law. Okay. You know, and, and so you do see smatterings of that in the old history where we've dipped our toes in there maybe. Right. But, but it wasn't until the sixties when we were kind of like the governor at the time was like, here you go. You yeah. and gives that's you the yours. blessing and says, go forth mm-hmm. and conquer the EQ world too. Right. And, and that's been good for us in some ways, you know, because you see now you see States struggling, you know, States that just do fish and wildlife, mm. you know, right now with, the way future generations don't see, don't use the outdoors the same as they used to. Right, hunting and fishing license sales are down.
1: Right, and if that's all you do,
2: and then that affects you're us less, mm-hmm. but it, but it's also a detriment in the way that our identity is split too. Right, you know, who are we? You know, are we the game wardens? We're not mm. really the game wardens. We're more than that. We're different than that. You mm-hmm. know,
1: and sometimes that that is kind of tough on a on a, a group like us. Yeah, you know absolutely because and depending where you work i'm sure it changes if you're in the adirondacks you don't have a whole lot of the environmental policies that you would closer to the city or dealing with the pollution type stuff i would assume well yes and no no really Okay. i mean in any urban area you're going to have more of the eq stuff that's what i was thinking yes
2: but but you do get that and i used to work up in the adirondacks for a few years and you'll get you know there's a lot of back roads where people just want to dump their trash, and yep. they, they don't want to bother going to the dump or paying the, the garbage man. You know? Right, and it, and even though it's not as frequent, it looks ten times as ugly when you go oh, into it. No doubt. So it's a big deal, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember a case up up in the Ticonderoga area where there was a contractor, and Ticonderoga is a, a little city. It's not a big city, but it's still a very rural area. Mm-hmm. And there was a contractor who uh, wanted to. He was into a lot of demolition, you know, of small houses and rebuilding, and he didn't want to pay to to get rid of this stuff. And he made a deal with this landowner uh, who had a a property that was mostly of a steep grade type nature. You know, you Mm -hmm. can dump everything here and cover it over. That'll help me get my property up so it's all level and nice and neat, and, and we won't tell anybody, and we'll just do this. And I kind of ran into it by accident, like a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You know, you run into them by accident, and I and I was amazed at the at the scope of it. I mean, this several acres of this guy's backyard was literally just trash, wow. with a with a light coating of soil over the top of it. <laughs> and in a in an area like the Adirondacks, in a pristine place where you think this is the last place I'm going to see that, right? You know, so it's there, mm-hmm. you know, and you find it. Yeah, no doubt. And when you do find it, it's It's almost worse, you know, it's almost harder to deal with, harder to clean up Mm -hmm. and, uh, and harder for judges, you know, and, and people that just don't see it every day to know what to do with it.
1: Right. And I think about when we talk about our history and our, our back, I mean, the tanneries and stuff, when the first cases came that they were dumping all this, you know, polluted stuff. I mean, again, it's a change of the times and judges sit there and are like, you know, uh, in the 30s, I can't imagine the, the first uh, pollution cases coming into a courtroom must have been, you know, they, they, like you said, they don't know what to do with it.
2: Yeah. I mean, how would you? you mm. know? And, then, uh, and then, of course, you're going to get pressure from people to not do anything.
1: Right, you know. Can you think of any of those big pollution cases? That are like the first big pollution case that you guys might have had in the oh, history. Geez,
2: historically speaking, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, okay. I'm sure there's there are plenty of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Kind of put me on the spot. I did. I did. And I, we should have done that in a pre-interview, but <laughs> it just came it came to me, and I'm like, that would, you know. I'm just curious because, like you said, a lot of us don't have that type of Mm -hmm. job or even, you know, think about looking into it and stuff. And tanneries always come to my mind because New York was a big tannery state back at the turn of the century and i know how bad all that environmental stuff that they dumped into the water knowingly or unknowingly because as we started testing stuff and learning what was bad for us you know that that was part of it too we just didn't know what we were dumping in the water and how we were killing our fish and everything else because they i think a lot of people if they knew wouldn't have done it because they liked fishing and hunting back then probably more than so now and -hmm. they had a lot less of those animals too because their predecessors had killed everything to eat Sure, yeah. Oh, um, but that's uh, no, just uh, it's an aspect of your job, like you said. I don't see a whole lot, so I was just kind of kind of curious if something came to mind. Why
2: um, not off the top of my head? It's I think it's a it's a it's it's a situation of there's so many I just can't think of are, one.
1: Uh, and and, you know and it's the situation of being put on a spot and asking a question yeah. like that too. So, <laughs> oh, the first conservation officer, police officer, or game protector killed in the line of duty?
2: Yes. First one, Sam Taylor. The year was 1914. So, <clears throat> and it's funny when when you think about it because the New York State Troopers didn't even come into existence until
1: 1917.
2: Okay. So, you know, before there were even state troopers, we already had our first officer killed in the line of duty. Right. And <clears throat> the story, in a nutshell, the story, Sam Taylor... And another officer were uh, they were patrolling uh, out near the Rome area. Um, they were originally going out uh, looking for waterfowl hunters, and they heard shots, and so they're kind of sneaking through, you know, just like we would do today, right? Sneaking so mm-hmm. through the woods uh, up along the shores, up the banks, and uh, they they run across a couple of guys that are they're shooting songbirds, you
1: know, uh, which is a big no no, of course. Right, and um, certainly weren't going to eat them.
2: Yep, and uh, and so they they confront them and. Like a lot of what would happen back then, you know, the first thing they do is the the guys lower their guns and start firing. And Sam Taylor took a a, a twelve gauge point blank to the chest, and the other officer uh, was uninjured. You know, returned fire. So imagine that. You know, there's these. Here's two hunters, and then there's two game wardens, and all of a sudden everybody just starts firing. Mm. You know, and it's and it's probably bedlam. You know, and Sam Taylor's laying on the ground and he's dying, and so the hunters flee and. His partner picks him up and carries him ca- physically carries him to the hospital. Wow, you know because they don't they don't have a car or anything right. nearby. So and the hospital wasn't too far away, fortunately. But he physically carries him to the hospital. And Sam Taylor, um, despite the injury, and you know you know what a twelve gates can do to somebody. Yeah, he actually did live uh, through some of the night. You know, and he he died in surgery. Wow, early the next morning. So mm. that's how it happened. Um, it's happened to a few other guys, you know, over
1: the years as well. Mm-hmm. Sam well, Taylor, did they ever catch the guy that shot him?
2: Uh, interesting story about that. They fled. They were, um, they were both of Italian descent. One of them fled back to Italy. Um, wow. One of them made his way to Chicago, I believe. Now I'm really kind of paraphrasing the story because I haven't looked at it in a while. Um, and we did a piece on it back at, at the 100-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so much time had gone by. By the time we actually found out where the one guy was in Chicago, um, the DA at the time, I believe, uh, declined to prosecute and declined to go forward with it and try to to get him huh. back here, which blows your mind, right? You know, right. in this day and age, but back then shootouts were common. That's just that was just the mentality, you know. Yeah. Geez, you know, it's been seven or eight years, and he he was just a game
1: warden. Yeah. Yeah, the beginning of law enforcement. So, mm.
2: so yeah, there was really no justice for Sam Taylor, mm. yep. and it's and it's interesting. And I probably am di- going to digress a little. You can cut this if you want, but <laughs> but you know, one of the stories that's always near and dear to my heart. It's not a New York story, but the Pogan Elms murders out, yes. out in Idaho. And uh, you know, I always think about those because those only happened in the eighties. Right? Maybe I'm dating myself, but the eighties to me don't don't seem that far away. No, and so. I agree. You know, when you tell stories about the old game wardens back in the teens and the twenties, and you know these guys open fire on them, shoot them, wound them, maybe kill them, and then they kind of get away with it, you know. And you mm-hmm. think that could never happen today, but oh, yes, really, you know, the '80s wasn't that far back, and you know they they did put Claude Dallas away for a little while, but but he's but a he's free, free man, man right today. now. He's walking around a free man, mm-hmm. and he shot two game wardens in the back of the head, point blank, yeah. like they were like they were game. Yes, you know. And so, I guess the moral of the story is we all have to be vigilant. Absolutely, you know, we all have to keep watch. It
1: can happen anytime, any place. And I, I think we do take it a lot more seriously today, you know, than we did before. I think it keeps gaining and gaining. I hope so. Some discretion, discretion there, but yeah, I mean, nineteen fourteen, and uh, yeah, one went back to Italy, one went to Chicago, and then they don't prosecute because it's been seven or eight years. It's pretty sad, even for nineteen fourteen. Yep. Uh. I, I know. I, you gave me a coin earlier that has quite a few names on it, actually. So through the years, you've we've lost quite a few officers. That's right. Yeah, that's our fallen
2: officer challenge coin.
1: Mm. And mm-hmm. I noticed that. I noticed that uh, the the memorial it shows on it has a uh, quite you know it, it it was full at least on the coin and you know certainly something you know that that you know p- pins my heart too when I see that and we have to memorialize that. So that means that mm-hmm. they died in line of the duty doing something in protection of the natural resources in New York Um, and any others that stand out, you know, stories like the 1914 story.
2: So uh, Bill Kramer was an interesting story because he was actually shot twice. Um, And again, I'm kind of, I can't give you the dates like right off the top of my head, but Bill Mm -hmm. Kramer was, he had come a few years after Sam Taylor and he had gotten shot in the face earlier in his career. And they didn't really they were reasonably sure he wasn't going to die but there there was a, it was touch and go for a while there. You know, he was he was beat up and shot pretty bad and he came back to work. Mm. And a couple of years later he got himself into another unfortunate situation and that time he got killed.
1: Wow. Sounds like there was a lot of gunfights back then.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and Bill Kramer worked uh down in the uh Queens area, Jamaica Bay down in New York City, mm-hmm. which you know didn't look anything like it does now, of course. No. But it was still, like, considered one of the most dangerous places to work, mm-hmm. you know. And just some things change and some things stay the same, right? We still go out all by ourselves sometimes, don't we?
1: Absolutely. So. Yeah. And going to places where that aren't readily available to other people law enforcement officers for backup and things like that. Yeah. I just, you know, and everybody may be coming, we but can you find us?
2: Yeah. And everybody we talk to during hunt season has
1: a gun and has a gun, you know, but um, it's, it's a very dangerous job. And that's one thing this podcast is, I think brought to light and talking to, you know, game wardens like yourself around the nation is, you know, it's, it's a very dangerous job that we do. We work with people with guns and sometimes with tempers and, you know, we have incidents to this day. So to hear those old stories, uh, they're not—they're not so old because they're—they're they're relevant even today. And uh, yeah, no, I totally understand uh, where you're coming from with that. And Bill Kramer is certainly has to get shot twice. Uh, what a brave man to to go back at it to come too. back to work, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so as our history progresses, though, I mean, when when did uh, you, they go to a uniform and kind of started the structure for New York?
2: So the actual uniforms. And it's it's interesting because we're talking about Sam Taylor. Mm-hmm. You know, the Sam Taylor incident really was a driving force behind the start of what we would call formal training and kind of professionalizing us because that's when the decision was made that, yes, it's time for us to get uniforms. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's time for us to issue out firearms and not just have the guys carry whatever they feel like carrying. And Guess what? Now we're going to train them to, on how to shoot, and so all those things kind of built off the death of Sam Taylor. You know, so he was really the start. His death was the start of us becoming more professional.
1: Wow! So they started really in 1914, forming something.
2: It was yeah, it was very soon after.
1: Very soon after. Yeah. Huh. And the first patches were they?
2: So patches were kind of a thing. I like to think of it as as like a World War One, World War Two thing. You uh-huh. know, that was when. I think police agencies in general started looking more towards the military for how are we supposed to look.
1: Right. And and
2: I think that's how patches kind of grew out of that. Hmm. You know, So our first patch came out in 1952. Okay. That was the first time we put a patch on a uniform. And I think if you look around the country, a lot of states were pretty close to the same time period. It was probably just post-World War II or maybe – Maybe a little earlier, but not much, where you're probably 90% of the agencies. That's where the patch kind of idea came from. It was, let's get the uniform. If we're going to make them look professional, we probably have to make them look somewhat
1: military,
2: Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word.
1: And there was a lot of military people coming out of the service making those decisions as well. Yeah, posing those ideas. Mm -hmm. And And so that's probably where the paramilitary came from. Is is probably the same type of error too, because that's where we started making our patches, making our uniforms, and doing that type of stuff. Especially coming guys coming out of World War Two, World War One, into jobs like these.
2: Oh yeah, ab- Well, absolutely. You know everything the high boots, the right, the bloused out uh, yeah. pants with the big the big breechy sides on them, the breeches they were called. Right. Yeah, all that stuff was. You know that we were kind of taking those cues from the military and how we should look.
1: Uh huh that's interesting because I've never really put that together that 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 at that time frame is where it was built and and the, you know it makes sense I mean I should have thought of it before but I just uh, you just put it all together for me of oh, that that coming out and hey if we're gonna be game wardens we got to look like game wardens and what's a game warden look like well if we're gonna have to have a patch because that's what we did in the military we need a patch we need a uniform we need to look like this we need to have you know a hat we need to have a cover you know mm-hmm. and. And that, that that starts building it all up so and,
2: and guys were very against that in the beginning you they know were because huh? they were they wanted to sneak around and yeah. you, just like we do now, you know we love mm-hmm. we, it's during hunting season, right we love to walk right. around in a cover coat <sighs> so they don't know who we are until we get right on top of them mm-hmm. you know and there were a lot of guys that were very against uniforms in the beginning, and um <clears throat> there was actually a time it's funny we we put together in the in the late fifties there was a, a i call it a secret service of game protectors there were a lot of problems in the Adirondacks with a lot of these big hunting camps mm. you know it they were very remote it's very hard to get there um, you know if you weren't part of the club you weren't even you weren't even getting within 10 miles of the, of the camp you know and so we kind of started like a little undercover force the, of guys and so the uniform as much of a detriment as it might have been as uh, here comes the game warden mm-hmm. it got people used to seeing us that way. So, that when someone came along in plain clothes, you were totally surprised. Yeah. You know, it didn't take long to, for the culture to kind of change from, you know, and only a few years prior, you know, the game Ward didn't wear a uniform. Right. So he could have been anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, now it, people kind of got used to the idea that he was, they were going to see you looking like that. Yeah. And when they didn't see you looking like that, boy, those guys had a pretty decent advantage.
1: Oh, neat. And so, it's kind of interesting how things kind of come around and go around. Right. right? Yeah, because we, we definitely like that. That's that undercover aspect for sure. And we do like throwing over the overcoat on and, and mm-hmm. being right up there. And, you know, I was uh, running a decoy one time and uh, the landowner, you know, there was some action out on the road. So we walked up through the woods to see what was going on. I was laying in the snow with my snow camo on. And uh, it was just funny. He looks down and I, I, I say game warden. Uh, he's he's looking at me, he gets instantly mad. I can see how mad he is. And I'm like, I'm like oh, he has no idea what I just said. So I rolled, just peeled my, my jacket back to expose my badge to him. And I said, game warden. And his whole face, all of a sudden it comprehends. The, this is the game warden's here, you know? And he's like, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I said, yep, we're working the detail here. So we're trying to catch road hunting. And then he's all happy. But, you know, before it was just that comprehension, like you said, from not understanding who this person was laying in the snow next to the road was to, you know, all of a sudden the comprehension is just like a light switch goes on and he's like, wow, yeah, it's a game warden. And so, and with violators as well, when you catch them in the act or whatever, and, you know. When we're usually undercover as uniformed officers, we we expose ourselves to them usually in a generally quick way rather than the big investigation where you clean up at the end where undercovers come in into like that. But, you know, we do a lot of like you said throw a coat over and act like a hunter and walk up on hunters and say, "Hey, you know, can I check your license and you know peel back our jackets and so they expose our badge so they know who we are." Or if you're a well-known game warden, you know, as soon as you walk up and they see your face, they're like, "Oh." Yeah. <laughs>
2: And it's funny, I've had people say to me, you know, that's not fair.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's not, <laughs> you know. But they, they started with that. that that's kind of neat that they started on that theory. And I can see the whole, yeah, the whole, No, no I don't want to go, I don't want to, you know, why would I want to wear that? Everybody's going to know who I am. And changing over to um, that because, you know, certainly seeing it deters violations. Mm-hmm. So, and there's a balance there to be met, you know, today. So, but. So moving on into the history. So what other highlights can we bring out with the New York State environmental police uh, history that we can talk about that's pretty cool? Mm, let me think.
2: So if we want to keep going linearly, I, you know, let's see. Kind of like that. We're kind of just past the, going the, through the years. World War II now. Yeah. yeah. So I guess an interesting thing about that post-war era is, and I mentioned it before, you know, it, it was kind of like the dawn of the new era for for people, you know, mm-hmm. the fifties, it was that time of prosperity and people had you know, the work week was all of a sudden different and people mm-hmm. had more free time and recreation was a thing and people weren't just hunting to put meat on the table anymore. They were hunting because it was a sport to them. Right. You know, and fishing too. People were, you know, um if you look and you look at a lot of states and it's the same it's that same pattern too, whether it's boating, you know, all of a sudden everybody had a boat, you know, and, right. and lakes that didn't have a lot of people on them now there were you know there were so many people on the lakes you know people are like holy cow look at all these people out here and then you get into boating accidents hunting accidents all these things you know the statistics start to climb and and they want somebody to do something about that right and so and law enforcement wasn't the only answer you know education was another part of that it's a component of that Mm-hmm. You know, and that's always been in our mission statement. Education and public outreach has always been a part of our mission statement, as it is with a lot of um, right. wardens, you know, something you don't see in the traditional police officer uh, mission statement or mandate. Mm-hmm. You know, we we kind of have that, we've always had that built in, you know. And so we had been thinking as an agency and as a profession, we had been thinking about education long before the you know, the big boom of the fifties came along, mm. you know, although we really never formalized it or did, um, did it on a grand scale, but we were doing it, mm-hmm. you know, and now it kind of became a formalized thing. And of course, and you see it in most States now where they still have, the, you know, that hunter education, you know, the law enforcement, the game wardens are the hunter education people, right. You know, cause we were the ones you had to turn to, you know, who else mm-hmm. were you going to get to do that? And so, and New York state was the, one of the first ones to have, uh, hunter education, like a formalized hunter education class, where you had to pass the hunter safety course to get your license. Right, and we did that. Part of the way we did that was we partnered with the NRA, and at the time, the NRA was was really very small and insignificant. They were mm-hmm. like a target shooting outfit, really, right. more than anything else.
1: Because nobody really, needed them; everybody had guns. <laughs> yeah,
2: they were <laughs> they were more of a you know they were kind of into target shooting competitions. Right, so really, they weren't really into the hunting arena at that point and it's and funny you
1: say that because some some of the old timers like i got my nra card yeah which started like you said that fundamental hunter safety they actually thought it was and it's just hunter safety it's not the nra card but once upon a time it was yeah
2: and all the old patches used to have nra
1: on mm-hmm. them, you know because we were a partnership right you know
2: they were helping us to teach the classes and mm. and the demand was so crazy you know there would be you know you might spend and this is not an exaggeration they'd spend 15 minutes like teaching these kids how to to firearm safety because they just didn't have any more time. There were just so many people that wanted in on And so I think it's interesting that, you know, we were, New York was kind of, you wouldn't think about it, but New York was kind of at the forefront of that. We were kind of the first ones that kind of led that hunter safety charge. Mm -hmm. And we kind of did that in partnership with the NRA. And as a byproduct of that, the NRA just became this powerful organization because they kind of tapped into this brand new, fresh growing resource that is, you know, and those people are still there today supporting mm-hmm. the NRA. Right. So uh, that's kind of interesting. Mm. And our our first hunter safety um our I guess you would call him our coordinator back then. He was the guy that was in charge, the 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 game protector who was kind of in charge of all the hunter safety. You know, he's the guy that made all the big decisions. His name was Brian Bergen. And he was kind of our like he was like our star at the time, you know, he was like our face. Mm-hmm. You know, Brian Bergen was the guy that, you know, if you were going to do a uh, a press release or a, a news highlight, you know, that's, you wanted to use Brian and he was a huge guy. And I, I could show you pictures of the game wardens at the old training Academy. And, and you'll see like all these guys, and then you'll see this one guy that's like a, a full head above everybody else. Huh. And that was Brian Bergen. And you see, he was a, he was a very big man um, had a very uh, one of those strong chinned American faces. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was very into that hunter safety type thing. And he was actually the first person that was um, inducted into the Hunter's Safety. It's like like their Hall of Fame. The National wow. Hall of Fame for Hunter's Safety. Brian Bergen was the guy that went in there first. Wow. Because he was the guy at the forefront of it all, mm-hmm. you know, in our state.
1: Neat. And, uh,
2: yeah, so that's kind of interesting. Right. You know, and it's it's. It's very funny because I go to the, all the NAWIA conventions and everything and uh-huh. you go out west and or even down south and the minute you say New York people think New York City oh, you know and absolutely. they don't realize that there's more to New York State than just the city and
1: it's a big state
2: and even the New York City area you know it's so different than the rest of the state
1: mm-hmm. that yeah but New York certainly labeled itself the city and yeah. it's just like
2: you, you get that just because you get it you know right but but we're so much more and it's just mm-hmm. people don't realize it.
1: Yeah, that hunter safety aspect is pretty cool because as a trainee, I had to run the office sometimes and uh, I had to go out to the archives, what we little we had because it got burned uh, in the 80s, our department. But I went out to, to pull a report from 1968 or 69. So I went out and pulled, it was a hunter-related shooting where someone had been shot and killed. I pull out this report and it's front side and
0: back side and it's check off boxes and blanks.
1: And that's the investigation paper that they did. And I'm like, uh, this is crazy. And then I look in, and there's like six others of these. So I, I'm like, for a small state like New Hampshire, and I'm like looking at like six other shooting deaths in 1968, 69. I don't remember the, the, the exact year, but it was significant, I would think, for our, you know a state that if we have one, that's a, that's a big deal to us now. But the influx of hunter safety and how important it was because I a lot of people were just pulling triggers at whatever moved out there. They weren't, you know, Hunter Orange, they weren't identifying the target, they weren't doing all those Ten Commandments. It it was just a huge thing, and you can actually watch the reports dwindle as the years go on, and Hunter Safety is infused, and such a success story is Hunter Safety, because we went from having a lot of incidents to having rare incidents now. I call it rare, but, you know, no shooting's acceptable, but compared to what we had in the 60s today is, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we more small game than than deer because everybody's wearing their hunter orange and doing the right things and identifying their targets and what's beyond, so. Yeah. Yeah, and it was one of the most convenient ways to get
2: rid of somebody if you didn't like them, you know? Oh, it was a hunting accident.
1: Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. A lot of those hunting accidents should have been probably they were not accidents. Th- yeah, th- and even today they they really get dug into because of that aspect. Mm-hmm. It could be the reason behind it. So you gotta, you got to vet all that stuff before you can even call it a hunter-related shooting. Because, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm sure if we went back and the, the amount of homicides back then were probably significant compared to, you know, people want to get rid of this person or that person. And yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: We had one of our own game wardens, game protectors. I call them game wardens. It's so funny because yeah. you just think game warden, right? Mm-hmm. You just do. You know, New York, technically, we were never game wardens, but...
1: You never had that title.
2: No, we never did. Game huh. protector was the title, but, yeah. uh, but you know how it is—you throw things around interchangeably sometimes. I mean, game absolutely—that's kind of the, that, that's the, the one everybody
1: title, you know? keys on. In Pennsylvania just did a, a study, and because they are now game wardens, and they they took a, a study group and asked them, you know, what a conservation officer was, what this was, what that was, and then a game warden. Everybody seemed to you know, for all kinds of walks of life, identified what a game warden was. So that's they they retitled their badges and stuff game wardens. I was wondering what the story was behind that mm-hmm. because that's such a huge change. Yeah, and they actually did research, which just uh, I think it's the coolest thing in the world. And took demographics and brought them in and asked them, you know, questions or did surveys to to understand what they wanted to be called and why they wanted to be called. And everybody seemed to identify with a game warden. So and, and I, you know, that's why wardens watch. That's why I did my podcast, Wardens Watch. Right. But still, I you know, one, one person asked me, so is it about a prison warden? And I just said, it hurts when someone <laughs> says that. So, um, but they don't identify with the, the warden as the game warden. right? So, and those those types of people, that's why, you know, those aren't the people that I'm going to ever reach because they don't understand it. But I'm hoping to reach those people that are out in the woods and still can identify with a conservation officer, or game warden, because even though you're maybe a hiker or a biker or something like that, you're still an outdoor person and you still care about wildlife and seeing wildlife so mm-hmm. okay that's a side topic but we're we're yeah. back into history <laughs>
2: now i learned something today
1: yeah i know it's, it's some some people don't like my rabbit trails but i do
2: <laughs> no that was i was actually very curious as to why mm-hmm. they changed the name and if if there was an actual yeah reason behind it that had some research to it
1: yeah so. i'm very impressed that they did that and they went about that and and i'm wicked excited about the results so we just need to keep putting it out there so maybe we'll change New York State to New York uh, State Game Warden. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Historically, no, we've probably never happened. <laughs> Hopefully your commissioner listens to this. Maybe you never know what happens. <laughs> you,
2: hey, you know, we're we're open to anything.
1: Yeah. yeah so, so continuing on in that time frame, we're getting, you know, moving on to... Man, there's so many different directions
2: you can go. Um, it's... Uh, you know, in the 50s were a time we tried a lot of different things. In the 50s it was uh, it was a time of experimentation. You know, we started our first marine unit um mm. and and granted it was short-lived, but it was it was uh an attempt to kind of start a special team right kind of based on a special need. Mm-hmm. And what do you see now all over the place? You know, every every agency's got
1: special teams to right. handle their special needs. Well, more so now than ever. Yeah.
2: So, you know,
1: we were trying different things um, so you don't have a marine unit right now? We do. We have. A, do. We have one again, of okay. course,
2: and and it's it's come and go over the years mm-hmm. in, in different forms. So, but yeah, it's back in the nineteen focus officers. It was back in the late late fifties, early sixties that we kind of started this marine unit type thing to see if it would work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a motorcycle unit for a couple of years where we had a bunch of guys. Wow. On cycles, trained, you know, up to do, you know, whatever it is a game warden would do on a motorcycle. <laughs> mm mm-hmm. um, You know, and we were just trying different things. We, the uh, the education thing was, you know, was still, you know, I don't know if you've, the boating thing, you make sure, make sure for life jackets, you know, make sure, make sure.
1: Um, that's, I just, that's the first time I heard that. That was. Uh, that's a New York phrase. Uh, it, it
2: must be a New York thing, maybe. Yeah. I've seen it around, but. But we've been using that since like 1960. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the 60s were kind of that time where it was kind of like the end of that grand old era for the game protectors. Mm -hmm. You know, it it was now change was coming fast and hard. Mm -hmm. You know, the green era was there, you know, save the planet. All that stuff was happening. You guys had Woodstock. Woodstock. You name it. Everything Mm -hmm. was kind of happening at that time. Things were changing so fast.
1: All in New York and uh, all over the place well, once but, you again at the but, focal point but
2: now more than ever you know <laughs> or then more than ever in new yeah. york sure and, yeah and so like i alluded to earlier we we started kind of grabbing onto these other laws that were you know maybe embedded in the public health law or in business law mm. and we were kind of we consolidated everything and we changed the whole department structure so that we weren't just about fish and wildlife we were about you know, envir- environmental quality too. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge change, you know. And so the game protector title kind of went away, and conservation officer was the title that was adopted. You know, everything changed. The uniform changed, the badge right. changed, you know, the way we trained changed. You had a badge it back was, then? Yep. Yeah. We actually, it's funny. Um, we used to have a pin back, you know, we would wear right on our uniforms, and we were game protectors. And then that went away when we became conservation officers. Um, and I, th- I think we're the only fish and game agency in the, in the country that doesn't wear their badge on their uniform, mm. if I'm not mistaken. I, don't, I can't think of a single one that does not wear it except for us. And I've been told the reason for that was, you know, back in the, the early 60s, the only state agencies in New York were the game, the game wardens, the game protectors, and the state police. Mm-hmm. And it was felt at the time... Well, the state police had decided that they weren't going to wear their badges on their uniforms. It was going to be a wallet badge, and we were just kind of following suit with the state police to be kind of the same,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: because we were the only two state police agencies. And the feeling at the time was that the uniform was distinctive enough that you didn't need the badge there to to enhance that at all, mm-hmm. you know. And in it, in some ways, it set you apart from the local constable or whatever,
1: you mm-hmm. know, because they were wearing a badge, and so you you kind of looked different than them now, all right? Having been shot in the badge, I'll tell you, I I, kind of like badges. I'm glad you said that because I like wearing the badge. Yes, um, you know, but I'm an old school type thinker.
2: You know, Mm -hmm. being a historian. Mm -hmm. So, at fast forward to present day, you know, the the 140 year anniversary is is almost upon us, and the idea we had an anniversary committee, and one of the ideas that came out of that was an anniversary badge. Ooh, and and that's not like our idea. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. You know. You had nothing to do with that. You know, don't uh, don't try to string me up, Wisconsin. I know you guys had the idea before me. <laughs> we but had an uh, anniversary badge as well. There are a lot of states that have had anniversary badges mm-hmm. as their anniversaries come, whether it's 100, 120, 140. Yeah. And so um, we decided that, you know, it, it's time we do something like that.
1: I want to up you, but New Hampshire was 150. So. Yeah.
2: Well, <laughs> <laughs> we may have stolen a few ideas from you. Yeah. <laughs> I and don't that, want to implicate anybody that, but that's okay
1: great ideas are supposed to be shared.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we definitely looked at your decal that was kind of kind of neat looking yeah no, yeah no doubt so so we designed a badge and we kind of did it kind of going back to our roots. What was the the iconic badge and it was the game protector badge that mm-hmm. was worn pretty much all the way through from the, the early teens all the way up to 1964. It was probably mm-hmm. our longest running badge. Um, very distinctive looking, good looking badge. Yeah. And we decided that we were going to do an updated version of that as the anniversary badge. And so that we designed that. And then, um, are you guys going to be able to wear them? Well, it's funny you should mention that.
1: Because about my curiosity, our, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but we, I am like, I'm just, in, yeah.
2: We I'm, brought that idea to our director who was very wise mm-hmm. and said, that's a great idea. You know, it'll maybe stand we out. Should do that. And so, um, our class A, our dress uniform really isn't kind of made for that right now. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can see what I'm wearing, and it's just right. the wool with no reinforcements on it. But our class Cs do have the badge reinforcements already in them.
1: Because you everybody know? else has a badge except for so you. So
2: it could be that. Could be that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um, so we're already kind of made out for that, and the, and the director is all for it. You know, if if the guys want to purchase an anniversary badge, they're free to wear it on their class Cs.
1: Uh, that's going to be pretty awesome. And so that's what awesome. we're going to
2: do for next year, yeah. So it'll be like the Game Warden of old, but with an updated look.
1: Are, are these going to be available to, to purchase by other people? We've Well, we've
2: opened it up to uh, the retirees. Okay. Um, but outside of that, we have not. Okay. Um, we really haven't given it much thought, to tell you the truth. I know that our Officers Association has purchased a few extras to raffle off at their conventions. Yes, I can um, see where
1: that would be... Uh, that's neat one may or show
2: up at now at some point in a uh-huh. n- raffle auction type setting yeah so there might be a few around but um we really haven't decided to go much farther than the officers and the retirees with it mm-hmm. at this time
1: and if you open it up it's not special anymore yeah so but true. just my opinion so i think i think that's an awesome idea i think that's a great idea and uh it's definitely going to stand out because you guys don't wear badges It'll it'll
2: definitely be different.
1: And then, you know, that's one thing. I think when we wore our anniversary badge, it was silver because that's, and and our normal typically is gold, but people still didn't really recognize it or ask questions. And I kind of wanted that to happen. I wanted to tell them it's the 150th year and this is, you know, our anniversary badge and we're going to wear it for a whole year. And and there was some conversations, but, you know, I always, I I guess I wanted to have more. I was pretty proud of that. So, you know, that's so I hope you have an opportunity to talk about, you know, all these things—the hundred and fifty, 140th for you—and uh, that anniversary badge, and you know the, the history of New York Environmental Conservation Police. Now, the police part—what year did that come in? So
2: that was right, and again, it went all through with it. It kind of flows quite nicely because right at the end of the '60s, when everything was kind of like consolidated, all the laws were put together, and the department changed its name from the Conservation Department to The Department of Environmental Conservation, mm-hmm. and shortly after that, in 1971, we got our official police powers. Oh, so that's when we got the the name "police," you know, added to our title. We didn't really put it on anything until uh, a little bit later, 1978 was when it
1: finally went on the on the patches mm-hmm. and and the badges too. Uh, you were probably were you the first one in the nation, to put police on your patches and badges?
2: We might have been one of the first, but I I don't think we were the
1: first. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm trying to think. That seems pretty early to me when you say that, you know, because we we still have an insignia of police, and there's there's quite a few that do, but there's quite a few that don't. So I think Rhode Island, uh, Mm -hmm. Maryland, uh, yeah, Texas.
2: I'm trying to think of actually where I saw police on a, on an older patch, and I th- started thinking, boy, that's pretty early. Mm. And it wasn't our state; it was. geez, I, I came. Th- I'll think of it after. Yeah, but you were definitely
1: down. one of the early ones, I believe, to to add that mm-hmm. on. So that, that's pretty unique. So. Yep. And, and here we are, going to be 2020 on the anniversary, 140 years of law enforcement in New York. 140
2: years. Uh, the Class A uniforms will get a citation bar with 140 years of service on it.
1: Nice. Um, with the New York State
2: Excelsior Insignia on one side and the little picture of the badge on the other side, the anniversary badge. The cars will get decals. I don't know where we got the decal idea from. Yeah. It might have been New Hampshire. But, yeah. But the cars are going to get decals to put on there, say 140 years of service, oh. you know, with a little, some kind of a saying on it and a picture of a conservation officer. Um, it's all coming along quite nicely. Yeah, you know,
1: you know it's awesome. It's awesome to celebrate. It's awesome to promote your department and what they've done and what they've gone through in 140 years, from you know game protectors to eight guys to a force of 300 and uh, the accomplishments through that to keep uh, New York pretty a uh, pristine place because it's it, it's a gorgeous state. You know, from the Adirondacks to the Catskills, out to the Great Lakes, it's just a, a very unique place. Uh, your populations of wildlife are right up there. Uh, it's just, you know, uh, I think 140 years is, is something very proud. And I I, I I, think each one of us is always proud of our state. And I can tell, what, talking to you going through the history here, that you're very proud of New York and, and where you've been. And uh, probably because you live it as a historian uh Every day,
2: yeah, and you know, and it's tough, and you know, in the profession that we're in, sometimes you know, you go through ebbs and flows of morale, mm-hmm. and uh, and it is nice to remind the guys sometimes that you do, you should be proud, and that there are some milestones that are are worth thinking about as big deals,
1: mm. and the yeah. public should be proud of you guys too for what you've done and what you have preserved for them, because ultimately we work for the resource and the people that use it. And, you know, when they look at that 140th, they they should say, hey, you know, if it wasn't for these guys, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now. Whether we're enjoying the waterways or hunting, fishing, hiking, it's, it's, a, it's a huge accomplishment. And I, you know, for all this to, to tell them, hey, it's 140th years, you know, celebrate that what we've all accomplished together in that time. And that, you know, we can still enjoy our environment and have that foresight and look into the future, too.
2: Yeah. And. You know, and in an era where you see a lot of mergers and things like that, you know, um, I, I don't think we're ever going to go away. Mm. You know, we're very unique. You know, we have a, a very special function. I don't think you could put us with the state police or anybody else. You know, I don't think... You would
1: lose something if you did.
2: I think the people of the state of New York would definitely lose something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, because you, you, can't, you can't maintain the type of speciality that we, we have in a, in a big general mm-hmm. soup like that that the state police are, you know, yep. and that's not to undercut them or anything. They have, oh. they have a job to do too, but
1: there's, and they're very so, good at what they do
2: and they're very good at what they do, but their job is so different than ours. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you, I don't think you would want to mix the two. You, neither one would benefit from that. All
1: right. Everybody you know? hears that. I say, we're the police in the woods. Cause that's how I, I describe it when I was going to do talks with, you know, younger children, I understand what the guys in blue do. And you know, Hey, we're the guys that do it in the woods. So, And this is our specialty, and this is what – and I think looking nationwide, we are becoming more of the police in the woods because when something happens in the woods, call the game warden because uh, he's the Swiss Army knife of law enforcement as it's been said in other – yeah, I, I, I stole that from somebody too. So I, I saw an article that said the game in the Swiss army knife of law enforcement. And absolutely, because, uh, you know, when I pulled up with my cruiser, I had about everything in the world you needed. And, you know, oh, yeah. Need right? 300 feet of rope? Yeah, I got 300 feet of rope. And everybody mm-hmm. looks at you like, you got 300 feet of rope? I'm like, yeah. I know. Right? And it's not something that was issued to me, it was something that I begged, borrowed, and stole from and uh, threw oh, it yeah, in because you never know. Right?
2: You yeah. <laughs> need an axe? Oh, here you go. Yeah. Bolt cutters? Oh, here's some. That, <laughs> I mean, just everything.
1: Yeah. A- everything. Thing because we run a lot, run across so many unique situations that all of a sudden you need something like that. Um, I, I, the bolt cutters are funny. I got caught in a farmer's field and he had locked the gate on me. Mm-hmm. I went in at 2 a.m. in the morning to work night hunters, and I came rolling out. It happened to be Youth Day, and he was he went into his area and he locked it so no one else could go. So here's the game warden stuck behind locked gates. So the next day after I cut his lock off, I went and saw him with a new lock and said, "Hey." You know, you locked me in, but here's your new lock. I had to, I had to un- unlock it <laughs> you know, my way. That's but, right. So, but I didn't have to spend the, an extra day there.
2: <laughs> I never got locked behind the gate. I almost did once, mm-hmm. but I, I've never had the pleasure. But when I first started, I was teamed up with an old crusty game warden who, you know, they. Gives you advice as you go along, Mm -hmm. and and one of his words of wisdom was get get some bolt
1: cutters because sooner or later you're gonna get caught behind a gate. Sooner or later you will. Yeah, Yeah, no, no, no doubt. So and those old timers, uh, they they do pass that on, all that knowledge and all that experience. And uh, I sucked it up from I, I when I landed. I landed with a bunch of very talented individual game wardens that I took all of their knowledge I could, and that 's what historians do, and that 's what you know you've been carrying through so that that that's really cool that you can bring these stories to light and uh, the dedication of those guys uh, through the years and hopefully you'll be able to pass that on tom
2: yeah and and while we 're on the subject of the retirees, you know if there's anybody out there listening that's thinking uh, you know a division historian is a good idea for them, mm. you know I would throw this out there too it 's not just about collecting up the old stuff. And preserving the history, although that is a huge part of it, um, mm. you know, I'm constantly trying to find you know old uniform items and things mm-hmm. I can use for displays and badges and and hats and whatever, you know, just not only just to preserve them but to have them so that people can see them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm also trying to put together you know powerpoints that you know so you can do like a kind of a who you are and what you do thing for people, but also give them some historical background to it. You know, I put together a PowerPoint so that um, people coming out of the academy, the new recruits, can see this is where you come from, mm. you know, that kind of thing. And th- that's a big part of being the historian. But another part of the historian job that I, I really enjoy is the retirees. You know, they're we all know our retirees are – they're out there. You know, if you go to your officers' association meetings or, or whatever kind of conventions you might have – There's retirees all over the place that still identify as game wardens, conservation officers, whatever you want to call them. They still want to be active. They still want to kind of be around the profession a little bit. And so I have, and it's nice because, you know, the era of email, I have Mm. like a nice big email list of all the retirees. And so I can send out email blasts of, hey, you know, we're doing this or, hey, you know we're doing the the badges, would you like one, or we're gonna do a qualification suit. did you do you want to come or it it's kind of nice to throw those things out there. <clears throat> one of the things we uh, another good example of that is we went back when the nineteen eighty Olympics were in Lake Placid. Our guys did a big security detail up there. We were a big part of of keeping um security up there, and so guys had access to carte blanche to like the athletes to mm-hmm. the to the cool to the hotels, to the back rooms, to yeah. the training areas, to everything. And they they got special uniforms, special equipment. It was kinda one of those things. And I kinda wanted to do a display like that, but I didn't have anything from that from nineteen eighty. Yeah. And so I sent out an email blast to the retirees. Does anybody have anything so I can make a display? And they're so everybody wants to help so Mm -hmm. much and you get so much stuff and then you put together this big display. It looks so great, you know, Mm -hmm. from Olympic flags to, to old uniform moon boots. Remember the old moon boots with the Olympic logo on them to all this crazy stuff that, you know, guys got their hands on. uh, uh, one guy sent me a puck from the Russian training, uh, (laughs) when the Russians were training just before they lost a miracle on ice, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, so many things, so many memories and then they, and they want to share, you know, they yeah. want to give you that to impart on people that are working now. And I think the historian is like a great conduit to those guys, yeah. you know, so that they can, they can give back even though they're not here anymore,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, because they were, A, they're part of that history, and, yeah, we we all want to give back. And I can tell you it firsthand, they're a huge resource. Mm. Anytime
2: I have a question about history, I can put it out to the retirees, and I will get an answer. Wow. You know, and if they need anything from me, they know they can call. Yeah. And so, and I, I get so many thank yous from retirees when I see them. Thanks for thinking about us. Thanks for keeping us in the loop. Thanks yeah. for, you know, making us feel included, and it feels really good, Yeah. you know. Oh, that is that's so, pretty important. You know, if I'm, if I feel like I, if you feel like I'm trying to tug on the heartstrings of people out there to get them to make historians, I am, Yeah. you know, because there are, there is a lot of things you can do with that job mm-hmm. besides collect dusty old hats or whatever. I mean, it's the sky's the limit, mm-hmm. you know?
1: No, I think it's an, it's an awesome position. And again, having the the fourth thought to do that so you can preserve that history and have someone, you know, designated to do that. It's just, it's an awesome, awesome thing. Cause I, how much history gets dropped through the cracks if someone's not in charge of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and we don't want to do that. Uh, we're all proud of our, where, where we came in conservation law and we all want to, tell everybody about it and we all want to share and i'm just wicked happy that you know you've made me a part of your 140th uh, celebration for the environmental conservation officer police in new york uh, so that's pretty special for me so i'm really going to enjoy sharing that with everybody else so i'm thanks. glad you
2: dropped by i yeah. you know i think what you're doing is a great thing well, i appreciate I really that i do i want to hear the story about how you got shot in the badge actually
1: yeah well <laughs> that that's going to be a future podcast <laughs> Maybe later. for sure right. that's definitely going to be a future podcast <laughs> thanks tom
2: you're welcome thank you
1: please join me game warden wayne saunders and other game wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife saving lives and having fun all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.
0: I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to Huntstands Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.